as I mentioned, we are we're in the summer months now, and uh, so we're going to start a, a new sermon series. We've been talking about members of one body. That was our previous uh, sermon series, uh, not looking at a specific book of the Bible, but kind of jumping around from place to place. But we're going to this summer kind of spend all our time in one book. So our sort of typical way of, of preaching here is we're going to go through First John. The letter of 1 John this summer on a series called Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity. And um, really dealing with the basics of the faith. So 1 John was a letter written by John the Apostle, same one who wrote the Gospel according to John. He's an old man at this time. He's an elderly man. And he's writing to a church. Churches are relatively new at that point in time. Trying to encourage them. Trying to strengthen their faith. And so he's dealing with some of the basics of of the faith. And we're going to look this morning just at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. We're going to just get started, uh, which is actually the whole first chapter. It's five chapters long, uh, jam packed, <laughs> jam packed with information, as we'll see. Uh, but this first part is about fellowship. Fellowship. Um, I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear the word fellowship. It's kind of an old word, kind of a churchy word. So if you're someone who didn't grow up in a church, particularly a Protestant church, you probably think, I don't really know, you know, fellowship is not a word I hear too often. Um, you hear it maybe in the university setting. Uh, the professor got a fellowship, you know, at a certain place. Um, thankful for Tolkien, who keeps the word being used in the fellowship of the ring, right? There you go. There's one place we hear it. A group of people, um, not just humans, but dwarfs and and elves and everything are united by a single purpose to destroy the ring, to bring it into Mordor and destroy the ring. That's a fellowship around a specific purpose. Well, the Christian life, friends, is about a fellowship. First and foremost, fellowship with God. First and foremost, fellowship with God. And secondly, fellowship with one another. In fact, that's what we sort of see here. That Jesus enters into our world, in chapter 1 here, to bring Christians into fellowship. And what type of fellowship? Both of those. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. We tend to sometimes emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. You know, it's really all about fellowship with God. That's all that really matters. Uh, maybe the, the extreme example of this would be the Desert Fathers. In the early years of the church, they would literally go out into the desert um, and just enjoy the presence of God and the grace of God and his love, which is remarkable and amazing in some ways. But they have excluded an important part of the Christian life, which is fellowship with others. And there are others who do the opposite, right? The the church is all about, I mean, it's all about the the social relationships. Uh, Basically, it's all about the, the social club mentality. It's all about our horizontal relationships with other people and not emphasizing enough the fact that it's primarily about fellowship with God. Well, here we see John, in writing to his churches here, trying to encourage them, brings both into play and says that Jesus enters our world to bring Christians into fellowship. John 1, 1 John 1, 1 through 10, it'll be up on the screen and there, if you'd like to read it in the Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you. We read this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that we too may have fellowship, excuse me, you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Again, Jesus entered our world to bring Christians into fellowship. There's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along where we're going. Break down the passage, maybe if you'd like to take notes. But again, Jesus entered our world to bring us into fellowship. First verses 1 through 4. Jesus entered our world so that we could have fellowship. He entered our world. That was the purpose, the end for which he came into our world. Look what he says there. Jesus entered our world with a purpose in mind. He entered our world. Uh, he describes what it means that Jesus entered our world, first of all. That which was from the beginning. Uh, what is he talking about? Well, this brings to mind, of course, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. That's the, the beginning of our universe. The beginning of God's creation of this entire universe. The beginning, God created the heavens in the earth, it also brings to mind his own gospel that he wrote earlier in his life. In the beginning was the Word. Uh, Jesus, the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, was with the Father at that point in time. He's saying, in the beginning, uh, this is what happened. This Word entered into our world. We have seen it. We've seen the Word of God in, with our own very own eyes. And we have done more than that. We've heard him and we have touched him with our hands. Which I think is the ultimate, really, reality that he has entered into our world. John Stott writes, But to have touched was the conclusive proof of material reality. That the Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. The word touch, the Greek word touch there, is the climax of the four relative clauses. Describes more than a momentary context. contact. It's almost like grabbed a hold of. Even groped. We have, we have held on to Jesus. We have actually hugged him. Wrapped our arms around him. He's entered into our very world. He describes him here as the life. And by that I think he means here spiritual life. What all of our spirituality in this world sort of points to is him. He's the life who entered our world in the person of Jesus. He's the word of life, the the logos, same word he uses in the beginning of his gospel. The revelation of God to us. He describes him as he who was with the Father. So, of course, he's not the Father. He's not the same as the Father. 
uh, but he is in unity forever with the Father. There's a, sort of the mystery of the Trinity, or two parts of the Trinity, along with the Holy Spirit. And he says, this is now what we testify to you, what we proclaim, what we desire to make known to you, is this word of life with the Father, whom we have seen and heard and touched. But notice what he says, verse 3, why? Uh, he has come that you may have fellowship. <laughs> That's the ultimate goal, that you may have fellowship, first of all, with us, he says, meaning with John and the one who's writing this, with other Christians. But indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. So the idea is, if I'm in fellowship with God the Father, and you're in fellowship with God the Father, then we, by definition, are in fellowship with one another. Those who know God and are in relationship with him are automatically brought into a relationship then with one another. So here's the point, friends. We can have fellowship with God. We can have fellowship with God. And understand why this is part of mere Christianity is many people don't believe this. Uh, maybe you're here and you're one of, the, one of these people who doesn't believe we can really truly have a relationship with God, have fellowship with God. There are different views. Maybe you fit into one of these. I don't know. Uh, some people, of course, believe there is no God. That's just the bottom line. So you can't have fellowship with a being who doesn't exist. <laughs> all there is is the material world. All there is is matter. Uh, there's nothing beyond that. There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing really unseen, um, except for things that are sort of so small you can't see them with the human eye. But there's nothing that exists. There is no God. Others would say, no, I believe there must be something out there, some sort of creator, but he's a distant God. So we can't really know him, but he's out there somewhere. Okay, so there are some people who believe that, and actually some, um, some views of science have kind of gone in this direction, uh, that there's no way that our world, with all of its intricacies and design, uh, could have happened on its own, so there must have been some powerful alien that actually created this universe, that's a, that's a, or created this world, at least. He's out there, we don't know who he is or what it is, but it's somewhere out there, we have no relationship with the creator of this world. Another view, and this is pretty common around the world, is, no, there is some force, uh, some God, but it's not a personal thing. Uh, the universe is God. I've got a picture here from, from NASA. Uh, I mean, just how beautiful. And the, the universe is filled with light and color and energy and beauty. So the universe is then not just a creation, it's brought up to be God itself. It is what is God. It's, it's, it's in control of everything. I hear this more and more in, in TV shows. Uh, you know, the, t the universe blessed me. Uh, the universe gave me this. You know, they usually, they're just basically replacing the word God with the universe. The universe is brought into a divine state, or just nature itself is God, or that there is a force out there um, there is an energy, perhaps, out there uh, that sort of develop, that sort of moves things along, but you can't know it in a personal sense. A lot of people believe that. Uh, now, that's very distinct, um, and if you believe that here, I just understand that's very distinct from what Christians actually claim and believe. We believe, yes, there is a God. He is eternal and all-powerful, but he is also intelligent, and we can know him. In fact, friends, he wants us to know him. That's a big difference, right? <laughs> if God didn't want to be known, we couldn't know him. Right? So 
We don't study God under a microscope as if we're the superior, he's the inferior, and we can just kind of figure him out. He's, if anything, we're the ones under the microscope, right? He's the, he's the all-powerful creator. But if God wants to be known and he wants to show himself to us, then we can know him. And the truth of the matter is, friends, God is going out of his way to make himself known. <laughs> he really wants us to know him. He speaks through nature itself. All of creation declares the glory of God. Everything that he has made, the beauty of the sky, and even that picture of the universe that I showed you earlier, is his painting so that we can know the artist who made it. But more than that, he's given us his word. That's what Teddy was saying in her prayer, in preparation for the sermon, she didn't even know. Uh, is that God gives us his word because he wants us to know who he is. He reveals himself in human ways in the scriptures so that we can know. You say, well, wasn't it written by men? Yes, men carried along by the Holy Spirit, inspired of God, recognized by God's people to be his word throughout the ages, tested by time. Yes, this is his word in our world revealing himself. But all that, friends, doesn't even compare to his greatest, his greatest revelation. God brings his son into our creation to reveal himself. The Bible actually says in John, John's gospel, Jesus exegetes the Father. <laughs> That's a word we usually use to describe the Bible. You're exegeting it. You're, you're trying to interpret it and understand it. Jesus exegetes God, the Father, to us so that we can know him truly and personally. We can have fellowship with God. Understand, friends, that this comes fully only through Jesus. Nature is great. <laughs> and what it says about great, what it says about God is amazing. Uh, the beginning of Romans, his divine nature, his eternal power is made known to all of creation. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day it pours forth speech. So yes, all of creation speaks about how great God is. But to have fellowship with God takes more than creation. It takes more than nature. It takes Christ. It takes Jesus and faith in him. And friends, when we say a relationship with God, we mean a real relationship. Now God is not... God the Father is not a human being, uh, but we can have a, a real, true relationship with Him. Uh, we can grow in relationship with Him. We can grow through His understanding, His Word, and through prayer, speaking to Him. Um, when, when we know God, He's confronting us about things in our lives. When we deal with sin in our lives, and no, no Christian is automatically in agreement with God about everything. There are things that we're going to disagree. We read the scriptures and we're confronted about our own sin and we're called to change and repent just like you would in any other relationship. Right? You're dealing with someone who doesn't agree with you on everything and you're learning to come in conformity to who He is and what He's calling us to. There is genuine intimacy with God. We can know him in fellowship. That's why he came to us. Understand also, though, that feelings do not determine that relationship. And I think that's important. We can, of course, sense and feel a closeness and intimacy with God. But that if we don't feel that one day, it doesn't mean we're no longer close to God. We're in relationship with God regardless. Just like if one day you feel really close to your spouse, maybe you get into an argument, the next day you don't feel so close, but you're still married, you're still in a committed relationship with one another. So it is with God. We're always in relationship with Him, but we can enjoy that in fellowship. And let me just say, friends, fellowship with other Christians comes from that relationship. 
As I said, everyone here, if you, if you are in relationship with your creator through Jesus, and I'm in relationship with our creator through Jesus, we are brought into fellowship, relationship with one another. That's what John is saying to his audience, to his readers. I want you to recognize why Jesus has come so that you would be in fellowship with us by being brought into fellowship with him. Look at five through seven. Those in fellowship with him walk in the light. They walk in the light. It's necessary, necessary to walk in the light to have fellowship with God. Look what he says, God is light, in him there is no darkness. Now, understand he's using light and dark as symbols. Actually, it's very common in the Bible. Uh, you see it in Isaiah a lot as well, that light and dark are used symbolically. I think I read that they're used symbolically more than they use literally, actually, in the Bible. So that's how, how often they're used as symbols. Of light is, is something that makes something clear, <laughs> visible, seeable, known. Um, and dark, of course, is sort of chaotic, unseen. Uh, but more than that, light is used as a symbol for good, what is morally right and good. And dark is used often as a symbol for what is evil, what is against God, what is sinful, and in rebellion against Him. He's saying here, if we claim to have fellowship with God, and yet we walk in darkness, and he's using that in that moral sense, we walk still in our sin and ignorance of God, he's saying, you lie. <laughs> you lie. You're claiming something that you don't actually do. It's not true. God himself is light. He is perfectly good in every which way. There is no sin or evil or blemish when it comes to God. If you claim to have fellowship and walk in the dark, you don't do the truth. I noticed that in John, the truth isn't just something you believe. The truth is something you do. Right? So sometimes he says practice the truth or something like that. But literally it just says you do the truth. We think of truth as something you, you know, believe, you hold to, you understand, and John, you do it. If you, if you believe it, you do it. It affects your life. If we walk in the light as he is, we have fellowship, notice what he says, with one another. He skips fellowship with God, because that's assumed. If you walk in the light, of course you have fellowship with God, and therefore you have fellowship then with one another. But notice how he closes this section here. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. By the blood of Jesus, he doesn't attribute any sort of magic or superstition to the actual blood that flowed from Jesus' veins. Blood is used oftentimes here as a metaphor for death, for sacrifice. The blood of Jesus meaning the death of Jesus in our place is what cleanses us from sin. Now, it's important, <laughs> very important that we get this right. What is then the relationship between Living a godly life and being in fellowship with God. That's huge. Because he just said, if you're not walking in the light, you don't know God. You lie. So, so what is the relationship then by living a godly life and, and being in fellowship with the one who made us? First, let me say what he is not saying. Okay, what is he not saying? This is what he's not saying. He is not saying that we need to be good people in order to know God. He's not saying that. He's not saying you've got to be a good enough person and then when you sort of get to be good enough over a long period of trying hard, then you'll be in fellowship with God. How do I know that? Because he just told us that the blood of Jesus covers their sin. They're not perfect people. They're, not, they're sinful people. In fact, the whole of the New Testament <laughs> declares that there's no way to earn ourselves, ourselves back to God. So what is he saying? I think this is what he's saying. That those who know God 
will, not might, will experience a changed life. It's, it's not an if for John. Those who follow him will experience a changed life. They'll begin to walk in the light. No, it's not saying here a sinless and perfect life, but a, cha- a genuinely changed life. And I think it's important for us to get this right. Understand there, there, are, there are different paces. <laughs> so people grow at all different paces, right? So you can't look and say, are you, have you reached a certain level of, of maturity? That's how I know you're a Christian. Because everybody's different. People start in different places. On sort of, the question really isn't how mature have you become, but has your life genuinely changed? By following Christ. I stole the title of this whole sermon series, of course, from a guy named C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer named C.S. Lewis, called Mere Christianity. He wrote a book called Mere Christianity, uh, one of my favorite books. In fact, if you get a chance to read that over the summer as I'm preaching through this, that might actually be a good, good thing to do. But I love one place in this where he describes this, and I'll have the whole quote, it's a little long, up on the screen. Uh, but Lewis imagines two people. Uh, two people. One of them is Miss Bates, and she's a Christian, and she's a mean-spirited old lady, <laughs> right? But she has now come to faith in Jesus. The other is a guy by the name of Dick Firkin. Dick is not a Christian, but he is a naturally happy, jovial, kind man. <laughs> but he's not yet come to faith. And this is what he describes. Christian, Miss Bates, may have an unkinder tongue than unbelieving Dick Firkin. That by itself does not tell us whether Christianity works. The question is what uh, Jane, that's uh, Jane Bates, Jane's tongue would be like if she were not a Christian and what Dick's would be like if he became one. Try to follow him here. Miss Bates and Dick, as a result of natural causes and early upbringing, have certain temperaments. Christianity professes to put both temperaments under new management if they will allow it to do so. What you have a right to ask is whether that management, meaning of course he's talking about the management of the Holy Spirit, God's grace, if allowed to take over improves the concern. Everyone knows that what is being managed in Dick Firkin's case is much nicer than what is being managed in Miss Bates. That is not the point. To judge the management of a factory you must consider not only the output, but the plant. Do not misunderstand me. Of course God regards a nasty nature as a bad and deplorable thing. And of course He regards a nice nature as a good thing, good like bread or sunshine or water. But these are the good things which He gives and we receive. He created Dick's sound nerves and good digestion. And there is plenty more where they came from. It costs God nothing, so far as we know, to create nice things. But to convert rebellious wills costs his crucifixion. Friends, it's a good warning to us to be careful. We don't know where people are starting from. We don't know where people are coming from. uh, What their upbringing was like. What we want to see is that the gospel is showing itself through a changed life, regardless of the starting point, and regardless of how nice someone has become. Here's why this matters. Here's why it matters, however, that he's saying that we have to walk in the light. We have to be trusting in the blood of Jesus. 
this, this command now to be a follower, to walk in the light. Because hypocrisy is a huge issue for Christians. To claim to follow Christ and to walk in the darkness is inconsistent. <laughs> it's not allowed. Uh, it should not exist in the Christian world. That's what he's saying. It's a big no-no. To claim to follow Christ and to continue to walk in the darkness is a contradiction. Friends, it's important to understand, and I think this is a, this is a word for our church, uh, there's no such thing as a one-and-done prayer that saves you. No such thing. What the Scripture calls us to, here's some of the terms the Scripture uses, faith is what saves you. And what is faith? An ongoing trust. That's what faith is. What saves us is a trust in Christ. Not a one-time prayer, an ongoing trust in Christ. We're called to follow Jesus. Again, that's not a one-time thing either. It's a lifelong thing. We're following Jesus. And actually, the most common term used for those who are saved is to be in Him. Which means, again, to be taken out of the world, the reign of the world, the sphere of the world, and to be put in Him and in His reign. It's not a one-time prayer. It's trust in Him as Savior. Friends, also, this is important, because a lot of evil is done in the name of Christ. And we need to understand clearly that it's not of Him. And distance ourselves from that which claims to be of Christ but walks in darkness. We've seen that over history. And if you're here and you're, maybe you're not a Christian and you're seeking the Christian faith, maybe this has been a big stumbling block. I know it is for a lot of people. Look at all the Christians have done over the years. Look at all the evil they've done over the years. Look at the anti-Semitism that's come from Christians. And actually, Martin Luther, one of my heroes of the faith, didn't do much to help in this issue. Uh, he grew a little impatient uh, with the Jews of his day because they weren't coming to repentance. And at the end of his life, grew angry and began to write against them. And yes, even commanded the burning of their synagogues. It's an ugly side of the Christian faith. Racism is an ugly side of those who have claimed to follow Christ. There are many. So we're part of the, the Southern Baptist Convention, which has done an amazing 180. Uh, but in its beginning, the Southern Baptist Convention was started because it wanted to send a slave owner to the mission field. And the North said, no, <laughs> we're not going to support a slave owner going to the mission field. And there ended up being a division in the country over that very issue. And of course, there's been a major sense of repentance about that and a change of heart, radical change of heart. Probably the most common one you hear from people is, what about the Crusades? Wasn't there, wasn't there a lot of evil done by Christians during the Crusades? And uh, in many ways, yes. Now there is, a, I think, a lot of naive understanding of the Crusades. The, the, the Byzantines were Christians. They sort of ruled over Jerusalem. Uh, it was conquered. It was conquered by the Muslims and then retaken during the Crusades. But a lot of evil, a lot of violence was done during that. Um, and yes, friends, we have to own up to that and recognize that is part of Christian history. In fact, one of the things we got to do uh, when a group of us went to Jerusalem, uh, was it a year ago now? Two years? A year ago. A year ago now, uh, we stood in a crusader chapel. 
beautiful Crusader chapel that was established in the 1100s when the uh, Crusaders came back and retook the land by force and violence. Uh, but we stood in a, uh, and I actually got a little video of this, uh, and I thought, what a redemption of taking this chapel that was taken by force and violence and singing instead Amazing Grace in it. So this is just a, like a 10, 15 second clip maybe. So I don't get the whole song on there. Uh, but the, the, you can imagine the acoustics were, were amazing there. So hopefully you saw some faces you recognize there. But again, that was a chapel built through the violence of the Crusades retaking the land. Friends, we have to separate ourselves and recognize that Christ calls us to walk in the light. I understand walk is a process. I mean, that's why the term walk is used. Uh, it's not an immediate thing. You're progressing. You're grieving over your sin. You're repenting of it. You're learning to long for God. You're learning to love what God loves and hate what God hates. You're learning to pray. And you're confessing your sins. Look at verses 8 through 10. Those who have fellowship confess their sins. This is important. Look what he says in verses 8 through 10. What then do we do with our sin? (laughs) If like we said, there are no perfect people... Uh, in the Christian faith, we need the blood of Jesus to forgive us, but we are called to walk in the light. What then do we do with our sin? We confess it. Those who say we have no sin, he says, in other words, somebody claims, I walk in the light all the time. All the time. I never fall. I never fall into sin ever. I'm a, I've, I've learned to reach perfection. This is what he says about them. They they, they claim that they've reached holiness. They they claim that they've now become perfect. He says, those who do so deceive themselves. You're lying to yourself. Because everybody else knows (laughs) that's not true, right? Everybody else around you knows you're not perfect. Um, Ask those who are closest to you and they'll be clear with you. There's no way those who know you believe you're perfect. But you're deceiving yourselves and the truth is not in you. That's a strong rebuke. For someone who claims to be sinless. He's basically saying you're a lying unbeliever. If you claim to be without sin. What we call to do then. He said is if we confess our sins. Open to God. Recognize that we're sinners. He's faithful. And just. He'll forgive you. Through Christ. He'll cleanse your sin. When we come to him. That's how we walk in the light. Walking in the light isn't being a perfect person. Walking in the light is recognizing our own sin, confessing it before God, and turning away from it on an ongoing and regular basis. In fact, just to make this clear, he sandwiches right between, he sandwiches that truth right between the two statements about claiming to be without sin. He ends by saying, if we say we have not sinned, not only do we deceive ourselves, that wouldn't be that big of a deal. Even worse, we make God a liar. And what does he mean by that? God has been pretty clear in the scriptures that were sinful, but I think he has even something more than that in mind. God sent his son into this world to redeem sinners. And if you claim that you can do it on your own and be sinless, you are saying that Christ wasted 
his death. That God didn't need to send his son. There are people good enough like you to make it without him. You make God a liar by doing the greatest act of love and sacrifice imaginable, giving his son. And somebody who claims to be without sin, as he says here, the word is not in you. Here's what it means, my friends, I think, I think when it says to walk in the light. To walk in the light is to admit you've sinned. Start there. Uh, start with the realization of your need. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I think it's John MacArthur who says when he shares the gospel, when he does things like James was saying, street evangelism, he starts there. Do you believe you're a sinner? And if you can't convince them or can't get them to realize they're a sinner, there's nowhere to go. You can't go to Jesus. You can't go to the Savior until you've realized that you need him as a Savior. When you realize that, then you turn to trust in the blood of Jesus, meaning his death for our sins. And then you begin to do the truth. You begin to take God's word seriously. You don't just hear it and know it, but you put it into practice in your life. It takes time. You still sin. You'll still fall. What do you do? You confess your sins continually as you fail and seek to repent and to grow and learn to love. And then proclaim Jesus, like John's doing right here, widely and clearly, and eventually just die and be with Christ forever. <laughs> That's the Christian life right there. Or Christ returns, which is even better. Friends, this is mere Christianity. And it's important to understand what, I, what we mean by mere Christianity. Um, we don't live in mere Christianity. There's more to the Christian faith than the basics. Uh, there's a lot of important things. There's things like baptism. Uh, well, is baptism an absolute necessity? Uh, there are different churches that believe in infant baptism. And then there are churches like us who believe in believer's baptism. There are different modes of baptism. There are differences. That's not considered an essential. Um, in fact, uh, Al Mohler, he's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He writes about a triage. Everyone know what a triage is? Uh, here's a picture of a, sort of a, an operating room. A triage, you know, for those, we have a lot of nurses here, so we know what people know what a triage is. But he calls it a, a theological triage, uh, where you recognize levels of need. And those of the greatest need need to be attended to first, and then you can go to different, different levels of need. I think I got that right. Some of our nurses can correct me if I got that wrong afterwards there. Well, in the same way, there's, there's sort of the same thing when it comes to the Bible. There's absolute essentials. Uh, without this, you're not saved. Without this, the truth isn't in you. Without trusting in the blood of Jesus, there is no salvation. So that's a, that's a, that's a base level essential. But everything's not there. There's another level. There's another level about what brings a church together. If you don't agree on these things, it's hard to function together as a church. I mean, how, if you don't agree on baptism, well, how are you going to baptize people? You're going to have to figure something out, right? And then there are other things that exist in even a, a lesser plane that are, we can, as Christians, can disagree with all the time. You read the Bible, disagree on a specific interpretation of one passage or another. Things like church government. I'm sure we have some disagreements even here. Um, how do we engage with the, the city and the world around us? Those are all important things, but they're not essential. This is what's essential. We declare it's right here in the first chapter that God is perfect. He is light, and in him there is no darkness. None at all. That he is a personal God that offers fellowship with us. That we can know him and be in relationship with him. That we are sinners. Every one of us. And we need a savior. Or we're in trouble. And that the blood of Jesus saves us. It enables us to walk in the light. Friends, this reminds us too that we are no better ever than any other sinner in this world. It should never result 
and a sort of superiority complex over others. We are sinners saved by grace through Christ. Jesus entered our world to bring Christians into fellowship. Jesus came to bring us fellowship with God and with one another. We walk in the light. We confess our sins. Mere Christianity brings us into fellowship. And what is fellowship? <laughs> like in the Lord of the Rings, they're gathered together for a mission. They're united together for a purpose. We have been brought into fellowship so that we might know God and bring Him glory. And bring that message to the world so that others might know Him too. By the way, this is why I love First Baptist Church. <laughs> this is how I know that God is at work here. Because I know, and I can see, and I can watch and experience the fact that people here are in fellowship with their Creator. People that love God. When we worship, we're genuinely worshiping God in relationship with Him. And we're in fellowship with one another. Uh, you know, I, I, I like to travel. A lot of you guys know that. But one of the best parts of travel is coming home. <laughs> and being with my church family and sensing that spirit of fellowship and unity. A fellowship that Christ died for. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much, Lord, that you want to know us and you want us to know you. Lord, you could have very easily left us in darkness and left us in our sin. That's not who you are. You're a God who loves your people. You reveal yourself daily and clearly to the entire universe through your creation. But even more so, Lord, you've given us your Son so that those who know Him and put their faith in Him, that recognize that Jesus has come in the flesh, can be brought into friendship, relationship, intimacy with our Creator. We pray, Father, for our church. We pray that First Baptist would grow continually in our walk in the light, that we would continue to know You more, that You'd continue to give us a thirst and hunger and desire to know you more. And that because, Lord, through Christ we're brought into a right relationship with you, we would continue to enjoy fellowship with one another. Lord, I do pray for anyone here who maybe is still thinking through these things, considering them. Again, Lord, we recognize that we are all sinners and there is no superiority. And we would just pray that you would help this individual or this group of people who maybe are still thinking through it to really grasp the love of God in Christ that you want to be known and you want to be in relationship that you would bring them through Christ into fellowship with yourself and as a result of that Lord we would also pray into fellowship with your people thank you Lord in Jesus name we pray Amen, Amen.